If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello again, my fellow Flyers. Welcome to the one and only Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. This is episode 17 of PCPC. Episode 17. Only one more episode to go and we'll be able to legally purchase cigarettes. Oh, we're almost an adult. That's what happens when you try and purchase cigarettes in the U.S., just in case any of our international listeners didn't know. The cashier behind the counter asks, how many podcast episodes have you released? And unless you've released 18 or more episodes, you're not getting your pack of smokes. On today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at the Uberlingen incident involving two flights, Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937 and DHL Flight 611 on the night of July 1st, 2002. Thank you to all of you out there that have been befriending us on Twitter and abstaining from mercilessly trolling us. We're on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. That's Plane Crash Pod. If you haven't followed us yet, please do so, say hello, and share any plane stories you might have. If you have a second and can review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts, we'd greatly appreciate your time and words. Whenever we stumble upon kind words from you all in a review, it makes us feel like we're not wasting our time. So thanks to all of you out there that have taken that moment and shared your encouraging thoughts with us. It means a lot to us, and we're grateful. On the podcast today, let's see here. Yep, uh, looks like we're lucky enough to be joined by one essential and completely irreplaceable Tess Andrade. How's it going, Miss Andrade? Hello, Michael. It's me again. Good to be here. How's life? It's good. I can't complain. That's good. So I realized last week when we were talking about your flight to Austin on United Airlines, I forgot to ask you about your level of nervousness on the flight. Considering today's our 17th episode and we have just come across our year anniversary, thought it was good to check in, see how you're doing, see how this podcast is influencing your life. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for checking in. And by the way, happy one year, Michael. Yeah, good job to you. Um, and, and to you. And to the listeners. <laughs> and to, to all our listeners out there. Um, I think this is a good question, and we have discussed this um, on and off throughout the podcast. I, I would like to say that it's it's helped me, but to be honest, I, I don't think it has helped my fear of flying. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely hasn't made the fear worse, which I'm happy about. Um, I think it's just made me a different type of passenger. I'm definitely way more aware of the things that are happening on the plane. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I think uh, a lot of friends that I've shared the podcast with, people that have anxiety seem to have less anxiety, and people that don't have anxiety said, hey, your podcast gives me anxiety. So I I feel like it's interesting to get uh, feedback from people. For me personally, my anxiety has gone way down. I feel like the more I've learned about planes, when I'm flying through the sky, I'm kind of thinking about the flaps going down and the different processes happening. I feel like it's created less room for negative thoughts. And I also enjoy the event of a flight now. I enjoy having a nice glass of wine in the sky, and it's part of the journey. Yeah, it's a good way of taking your mind off of your anxiety. Yeah. Well, if you're out there and you have a fear of flying, we'd love to hear from you. If We'd love to know if this podcast has made it better or worse. Yes, please let us know. Um, if you, Tess, get on a plane, plane's completely empty, you can sit in the front of the plane, the middle of the plane, or the back of the plane. Where do you like to sit? Ooh, um, well, I think obviously the front is easier to access, and it's also where first class is. Mm-hmm. But I I think I'm partial to the middle. I like the middle. I like to be near the wings, uh, see them out the window. Yeah, I get motion sickness easily, and I've learned that if I sit in the middle of the plane, it's best for me. Oh, okay, I don't so feel we can sit queasy. in the middle together. Yeah, sounds pretty sweet. I also feel like the front of the plane has some benefits. You get off the plane quicker, but I don't really care. If you're just on a plane for three hours, who cares if you sit on the plane for an extra 30 seconds? Back of the plane, the nice aspect of the back of the plane is that it's often kind of quieter, less crowded. Sometimes you can get a whole row to yourself. Mm, I have to disagree. I feel like the back is the loudest, and that's also where they throw all the Looney Tunes. Yeah, well, you might find me in the back. (laughs) I'm happy anywhere. I'm happy that I get to blast through the sky at any point. If you're in the back, I'll be in the back with you, Michael. Sounds good. Well, last week at the beginning of the podcast, we briefly discussed the incident of Pegasus Airlines Flight 2193, a scheduled flight from Izmir to Istanbul, Turkey on February 5th, 2020. Flight 2193 overran the runway after touchdown in Istanbul, leading to three deaths and 179 injured. We talked about wishing that there were longer runways or absorption walls for planes in similar circumstances, and a listener to PCPC, Alex from Finland, wrote in to inform us that there's something that I thought it was interesting and that we should share and talk about. Apparently, there's a new system being installed at the ends of runways at airports across the United States and also internationally called EMAS. EMAS stands for Engineered Materials Arresting System. It's a fancy name for an area of crushable concrete at the end of a runway. The idea behind EMAS is that now when an airplane overruns or overshoots a runway, it runs on top of EMAS, or this bed of crushable concrete, and the floor of runway starts to buckle. The wheels of the plane sink into this lightweight, collapsing concrete, almost like it's sinking into quicksand. EMAS absorbs the speed of the plane, bringing the plane to a stop. When I watched videos online about EMAS, it kind of reminded me of rollerblading as a kid. If you're rollerblading or roller skating across concrete, 
you can keep on rolling along with pretty minimal effort, but let's say suddenly that concrete just stops and you skate into some thick mud. Well, you slow pretty quickly. You lose all your speed because your wheels got stuck in this thick substance. E-mass is somewhat similar. According to an FAA fact sheet posted on the FAA website, EMAS is currently installed at the ends of 112 runways at 68 airports across the U.S., with plans to install three more systems at two more airports. Since EMAS came into existence, there have been 15 instances of EMAS stopping overrun aircraft with a total of 406 human beings on those 15 planes. 15 EMAS systems have been installed internationally at China, Norway, Taiwan, Germany, France, Japan, Switzerland, and more on the way. Tess, are you a fan of this EMAS system? I'm a fan, yeah. I think it was either that or a giant ball pit at the end of a runway. So Ball EMAS pit sounds more fun. does sound more fun for me, but... Um, Seems kind of hard to get the plane out of the ball pit. Right, yeah, because it's just so fun in there. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm a fan of EMAS. I didn't know this existed. Yeah, it seems pretty low cost. It's easy to install. Saves lives. It also saves plane cost to airlines. Uh, planes aren't getting hurt as much. You just tow the plane out of the concrete and you're done. Seems like kind of a no-brainer that we need EMAS everywhere, huh? Yeah. Well, let's get to today's sponsor. Our sponsor on the 17th episode of PCPC is BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's 21st century therapy. What Uber is to car rides, BetterHelp is to therapy. BetterHelp costs less than traditional therapy. You can talk with a licensed therapist via video chat or over the phone, and you can message your counselor 24 hours a day from the comfort of your own home. You're not confined to traditional 9 to 5 hours of typical therapists. You can schedule a session that works around your day and your needs. BetterHelp is great for people that lack options in their area. Maybe you already know the local therapist on a personal level, and to keep your privacy and see somebody else, you'd have to drive an hour out of your way. Well, now you don't have to. If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod, you get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. There you fill out a questionnaire, sign up, and they match you with a licensed counselor that specializes in your area of need. Tess, are you a fan of BetterHelp? Definitely. I love the convenience of it. If you travel a lot like I do or live a life on the road, it's also great because you can reach your therapist from any place in the world. That's great. It's 2020. Time to work hard and achieve goals. Maybe just a regular weekly talk with a professional therapist will help you get to where you want to go. So that's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. Once again, thanks to BetterHelp. Thank you, BetterHelp. I like to mention at the top of every podcast that I'm new to the world of aviation. I'm not a pilot, and I didn't get a degree in aeronautical engineering. Since I started flying at the age of 15, I've always just been a nervous flyer. Recently, I started this podcast as an anxiety exposure therapy of sorts, reasoning that maybe if I expose myself to this thing that I'm afraid of, maybe it would reduce my anxieties surrounding flying. We understand that all the tragedies we discuss involve real human beings that were victims, people with families, friends, neighbors that miss them. We in no way want to be careless or disrespectful to anyone. We just think discussing how these crashes took place, why they happened, is an important discussion to have. We hope to learn a little bit more about how planes fly and how these crashes from the past have improved the safety of the current air travel system. I hope some of you out there find this podcast to help reduce your anxieties as well. You ready to get started, Tess? Yeah, thanks, Michael. Let's get started.
Today we'll be discussing two flights, Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937 and DHL Flight 611. Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937 was a chartered flight from Moscow, Russia to Barcelona, Spain on the night of July 1st, 2002. The plane was a Tupolev Tu-154M, a narrow-body aircraft with three engines, two rear-mounted engines on the left and right side of the back of the fuselage. Another third engine was in the center rear, located inside the T-tail of the plane. The Tupolev Tu-154 was a very popular Soviet passenger plane. Many considered it to be the Russian equivalent of the Boeing 727. It was released to the commercial market in February 1972. The 2154M was an upgraded version of the original released to the market in 1984. It featured more fuel-efficient engines and a new 36-degree position for flaps, which helped reduce noise when on approach for landing. The 2154M used for Flight 2937 was manufactured in 1995 and had accumulated 10,788 flight hours over its seven years in service. It had 166 passenger seats. The captain of Flight 2937 was Captain Alexander Gross. He was 52 years old at the time of the incident. Captain Gross had 12,070 flight hours, 4,918 hours flying Tupelov 2-154s, so he's a very experienced pilot. Captain Gross was seated in the left front seat of the cockpit. He was being supervised by his first officer for this flight. Flight 2193 was headed to Barcelona, and Barcelona had an airport surrounded by mountainous terrain. Regulations stipulated that all pilots flying into Barcelona had to have an instructor for their first two flights there. So this was the second flight for Captain Gross into Barcelona, so his performance was being monitored. The first officer of Flight 2937 was 40-year-old Oleg Grigoriev. He was the chief pilot for Bashkirian Airlines. First Officer Grigoriev had 8,500 flight hours, 4,317 hours flying two 154s. The First Officer was seated in the right front seat of the cockpit, and he was the instructor, pilot in control, supervising Captain Gross's performance for the flight. There were three more men in the cockpit of Flight 2937. Co-pilot Murat Ikulov was seated directly behind the captain on his right side. He was 41 years old. He had 7,884 flight hours, 4,181 hours flying two 154s. The flight navigator, seated in the middle seat between the captain and the first officer, was Sergei Karlov. He was 51 years old. He had 12,978 flight hours, 6,421 hours flying two 154s, so he was a very experienced pilot. Lastly, the flight engineer seated directly behind the co-pilot was 37-year-old Oleg Valiv. Flight engineer Valiv had 4,191 flight hours. All of his flight hours were on two 154Ms. In Russia, commercial pilots are assigned to four different flight classes depending on their qualifications and experience when it comes to flying. You can be in class one, two, three, or four, four being the lowest, one being the highest class. All the men in the cockpit on flight 2937 were in the highest class, class one. So this is a very experienced, well-respected flight crew. Flight 2937 had 60 passengers, four flight attendants, plus five in the cockpit, adding up to 69 human beings on board. 45 of the 60 passengers were Russian children from a city called Ufa. 
The children were taking a school trip to the coast of Catalonia in Spain. The trip was to a UNESCO festival, and many of the children were kids of Russian political elite families. Originally, the trip was scheduled for June 29th, two days earlier, but the travel agency responsible for the trip took the kids to the wrong airport in Moscow, and they missed their connecting flight. It took two days to arrange a chartered flight so the kids wouldn't miss their festival. This chartered flight two days later, a flight to replace their original flight, became Bashkirian Flight 2937. So the flight crew for Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937 checks in at Domodedovo International Airport in Moscow, Russia at 8.30 p.m. local time on July 1st, 2002. After prepping for the flight for a little over an hour, Flight 2937 takes off from Moscow at 9.48 local time en route to Barcelona, Spain. At first, Flight 2937 flies south from Moscow before turning to the southwest and flying over Belarus. Flight 2937 continues flying on a southwest heading for the next two hours, flying over Poland, the Czech Republic, before making a direct turn to the west over Austria. It's late at night, and I'm sure many of the passengers on board are sleeping, getting their rest for their anticipated trip to Catalonia. At 11.11 p.m. Central European Time, two hours and 23 minutes into the flight, Flight 2937 is flying at 36,000 feet high above Salzburg, Austria, headed west on its way to Barcelona. Now, five minutes prior to this moment, at 11.06 p.m., another plane was starting down a runway, taking off from Orio Alserio Airport in Bergamo, Italy. DHL Flight 611 was a cargo flight that originated at Bahrain International Airport in Manama, Bahrain on July 1, 2002, Flight 611 had a scheduled stopover in Bergamo, Italy, and then it was scheduled to carry on, eventually ending up in Brussels, Belgium. The plane used for Flight 611 was a Boeing 757-23APF, a cargo version of the Boeing 757-200. This cargo version of the Boeing 757-200 was first flown in 1987. The plane used for Flight 611 was manufactured in 1990 and registered in the Kingdom of Bahrain. The 757 had two Rolls-Royce engines and had a total of 39,022 flight hours over its 12 years in service. Flight 611 only had two human beings on board, both in the cockpit. The captain of Flight 611 was Captain Paul Phillips. Captain Phillips was a British 47-year-old with 11,942 flight hours, 4,145 hours on Boeing 757s. The first officer of Flight 611 was First Officer Brant Campioni. First Officer Campioni was a 34-year-old Canadian with 6,604 flight hours, 176 hours on Boeing 757s. During the previous month of June 2002, Captain Phillips and Brant Campioni had flown the Bahrain to Bergamo to Brussels and then back to Bahrain route several times together. On June 28th, three days before Flight 611, the two had flown from Brussels back to Bahrain together, and they both had 75 hours off-duty prior to the flight. At 2.50 p.m. local time in Bahrain, both Captain Phillips and his co-pilot Campioni showed up to work, checking in at the airport in Bahrain to prepare for Flight 611. One hour and 40 minutes later, at 4.30 p.m., Flight 611 takes off from Bahrain en route to Bergamo, Italy. This initial leg of the flight is routine, it only takes 5 hours and 40 minutes to cross the Middle East and Eastern Europe before landing in Bergamo at 9.10 p.m. local time. 
After landing in Italy, Flight 611 drops off some cargo, picks up some new cargo, and they refueled. They were on the ground for one hour and 56 minutes in Bergamo before taking off again at 11.06 p.m. en route this time to Brussels. The second leg of the flight was scheduled to be a short flight, only an hour and 11 minutes. So to recap, now it's almost a quarter past 11 p.m. Central European time on the night of July 1st, 2002. We have Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937 flying over Austria, coming from the east and headed west, cruising along at 36,000 feet. And simultaneously, we now have DHL Flight 611 that's recently taken off. They're climbing in altitude above northern Italy, coming from the south and headed north towards Brussels. At 11.11 p.m., the Russian plane, Flight 2937, is above Salzburg, Austria, and they contact Vienna radar and get clearance to fly at 36,000 feet on a direct approach to Trasadingen VOR. This route would put them directly over Lake Constance in about 25 minutes. Lake Constance is a lake at the southern border of Germany that also borders Austria and northern Switzerland. Five minutes later, at 11.16 p.m., Flight 2937 enters German airspace, and they contact Munich radar, which controls Flight 2937 for the next 13 minutes. In the meantime, DHL Flight 611 is climbing in altitude after takeoff, and 15 minutes into their flight, at 11.21 p.m., the cockpit of Flight 611 contacts the Zurich Area Control Center. Uh, Swiss radar, good evening. DHX 611, just leveling, flight level 260. The Zurich ACC operator gives clearance to Flight 611 to take a northern heading and climb to 32,000 feet. Flight 611 responds, Roger, climb flight level 320, requesting 360, thanks if it's available. The air traffic controller at Zurich doesn't respond for the next four minutes. Now, Swiss airspace at the time and at present day is controlled by a private airspace control company called Skyguide. German and Swiss air control providers had an agreement that even though the airspace above the land north of Lake Constance was German airspace, that that area would be controlled by Zurich ACC, or the Swiss company Skyguide. So planes flying in the airspace above southern Germany near Lake Constance are controlled by Skyguide, the Swiss company located in Zurich. On the night of July 1st, 2002... The air traffic controller working at Skyguide that handled communications with both Flight 2937 and Flight 611 was named Peter Nielsen. Peter Nielsen was 35 years old at the time. He had trained as an air traffic controller in Copenhagen, Denmark in 1991, and he completed his training in 1994. He worked for Copenhagen ACC in 1995 and eventually joined Zurich ACC, or Skyguide, in February 1996. So by July 2002, Peter Nielsen has been working for Skyguide for six years. Now late at night, Swiss airspace is generally pretty quiet. It had become customary at Skyguide for only one air traffic controller to monitor the entire Zurich airspace by themselves. Earlier in the night of July 1st, Peter was working alongside a co-worker, and since traffic volume was low, there were no landings scheduled between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m., and it had become normal to work alone at the center, Peter's co-worker takes a break at 11.15 p.m., leaving Peter all alone to oversee two different monitor screens himself. 
In addition to being alone, there was maintenance work happening on the main ATC system at SkyGuide, which rendered the short-term conflict alert inoperable and delayed radar data. The short-term conflict alert is a warning system that alerts air traffic controllers if two planes seem to be on paths where they might be a threat to colliding with one another. Additionally, the phones weren't working. The maintenance activity took out the phone lines, and the backup systems weren't programmed properly, so nearby air traffic controllers couldn't get through to talk to Peter they happened to notice anything strange on their monitors, or to communicate to him if they get a short-term conflict alert. Also, Peter couldn't reach out to other air traffic controllers if he needed any help. So Peter Nielsen is alone at SkyGuide. He's overseeing two workstations. The phones don't work. Maintenance men are working on a system, so the warning system that aids air traffic controllers about possible collisions isn't working. Radar data is delayed, and the backup systems are down. So that's the situation late at night on July 1st, 2002 at SkyGuide, the area control center responsible for monitoring the airspace that Flight 2937 and Flight 611 are about to fly through. At 11.26 p.m., now 20 minutes after taking off from Italy, heading north, Flight 611 finally gets a response from Peter Nielsen at SkyGuide to the request to ascend to 36,000 feet. Peter Nielsen radios over DHX-611, climb flight level 360, and flight 611 begins its climb to 36,000 feet. This will put them at the same altitude as flight 2937. Three minutes later, at 11.29 p.m., flight 611 reaches 36,000 feet. At the same time that flight 611 is reaching 36,000 feet, flight 2937 is instructed by Munich radar that it's leaving Munich airspace and that they should now communicate with Zurich ACC on frequency 128.050. A minute passes, and at 11.30 p.m., the crew from Flight 2937 radios over to Peter Nielsen for the first time at Zurich ACC. Ah, Zurich, good evening. BTC 2937, level 360. Peter Nielsen acknowledges Flight 2937, and gives them a transponder code of 7520 to squawk. So at 11.30 p.m., Peter Nielsen has Flight 2937 and Flight 611 in his airspace that he's in charge of when a distraction emerges. A delayed flight that Nielsen wasn't expecting, Aero Lloyd Flight 1135, pops up on his right-hand workstation's radar screen. Aeroloid Flight 1135 is an Airbus A320, arriving late to Friedrichshafen Airport in southern Germany. The pilot of Aeroloid Flight 1135 radios over to Peter Nielsen at Zurich ACC. Zurich, Greuze. Greuze is Swiss-German for low. Ah, uh, AEF, uh, 1135, descending flight level 80. Peter Nielsen at Zurich ACC replies, AEF-1135, Roger, uh, call you back. So now Peter Nielsen has his hands full. He has two planes at 36,000 feet that he's responsible for navigating. And suddenly now a third plane, Aero Lloyd-1135, calls over and wants to be guided down for a landing at Friedrichshafen. To complicate matters even more, he has to switch between his two workstations to communicate with all three planes. Aeroloid is communicating with him on the right workstation on frequency 119.920. Flight 
Flight 2937 and Flight 611 are on his middle workstation radar and communicating with him on a different frequency, 128.050. So nothing streamlined or easy for him to deal with. He can only give one situation his attention at a time. If he's paying attention to Aeroloid, he's ignoring the Russian plane and the DHL plane. If he's dealing with the Russian plane and the DHL plane, he's out of contact with the Aeroloid plane that's trying to land. For the next few minutes, Peter Nielsen's dealing with a number of planes. He tells a Thai Airways plane to contact Mutic Radar, and he says goodbye. He tells a Monarch Airlines plane to contact Reams ACC, and he tells them goodbye. He's just trying to get stuff off his plate. He also gives heading changes and clearances for lower altitudes to Aero Lloyd Flight 1135 that's trying to get lined up for landing at Friedrichshafen. But Nielsen knows he's overwhelmed. He tries seven times to call the tower employee at Friedrichshafen to try and get them to take over communications with the Aero Lloyd plane so he can focus on Flight 2937 and Flight 611, but the phone lines aren't working. Nielsen gets frustrated and is picked up on the recording saying, Du das geht aus nicht which is German for you do not go out. He's frustrated that his calls won't go out and he can't get any help. At 11.34 p.m., Nielsen radios over to the Aeroloid flight, AEF-1135? The pilot of the Aeroloid plane responds, AEF-1135, go ahead, sir. Peter Nielsen replies, Yeah, I lost my phone connection to Friedrichshafen. Uh, could you please call them on your second set? Uh, one, two, four, decimal three, five, and uh, tell them you're coming ILS 24 with uh, 20 miles. So Nielsen's asking the pilot to reach out to the tower at the airport since he can't get through with them over the phone. The Aeroloid pilot says, okay, will do. Nielsen responds, thank you, and AEF descend 5,500. Now for the past minute, starting at 11.33 p.m., on flight 2937, the attention of the five men in the cockpit has been drawn to their TCAS display. What is TCAS? TCAS stands for Traffic Collision Avoidance System. The earliest TCAS systems were developed in the 1980s. As air traffic increased over the decades, the threat of airplanes colliding with one another has increased as well. This system was developed to help planes be aware if there's any other planes in close proximity around them that might be a threat to colliding with them. So how does TCAS work? TCAS uses a standard transponder on an aircraft, periodically transmitting an interrogation signal to other aircraft in the area, receiving these signals from other planes. It doesn't use a lot of power, so it's only getting messages from planes 40 miles in front, 15 miles behind, 20 miles on either side, and 9,000 feet above or below the plane, just in the general vicinity. TCAS analyzes these signals that bounce back to the plane to determine speed, altitude, bearing or direction, and then it calculates whether these planes in the area are a threat. It calculates CPA, or closest point of approach for aircraft in the surrounding area. There's different levels of warnings that TCAS can give. If TCAS determines that two planes, given their speed, altitude, and bearing, are headed on a path that would result in a collision in 48 seconds, it issues a traffic advisory warning, just a heads up to both planes that traffic's in the area and corrective action might be necessary. A little yellow circle pops up on the TCAS display and an audio warning of traffic, traffic is heard. This generally gets pilots' attention and gets them ready to change course if necessary. If TCAS determines that a collision's within 35 seconds from happening, 
a resolution advisory or solution proposal warning is given. On the TCAS display, that little yellow circle becomes a red square, and an audio warning gives instructions as to which vertical direction to go in. The TCAS on one plane will say, climb, climb, and the TCAS on the other plane, also threatened, will give an opposite direction, saying, descend, descend. This is all to get separation between the two airplanes so they don't collide. When these commands from TCAS are given, pilots are expected to enact an upward or downward climb of 1,500 feet per minute within five seconds. So at 11.33 p.m. on the Russian plane, the five men in the cockpit notice on their TCAS display that another plane has popped up on the screen. This other plane is just listed on the screen as proximate traffic, shows up as a little white diamond on their TCAS, hasn't even reached to the yellow circle or red square threat level yet. In the cockpit of Flight 2937, they look out the window to see if they can get a visual on the plane, and they discuss that the plane's at the same altitude as their plane, but coming at them from the left. Now the time is 11.34 p.m., and on the DHL flight 611, First Officer Campione has to go to the bathroom. So he gives control of the plane to Captain Phillips and says, handing over. Captain Phillips replies, okay, taking over. First Officer Campione says, stuff I can get you, asking Captain Phillips if he wants anything, and Captain Phillips says no. At this same moment on Flight 2937, Flight Navigator Sergei Karlov's eyes are on his TCAS display. He says, he's going below us. Captain Gross of Flight 2937 says, here it is in sight, look here, it indicates zero. The zero he's referencing is probably the zero he sees on the TCAS, saying the plane's at the same altitude as us. So as the first officer on 611 is going to the bathroom, the cockpit of Flight 2937 is seeing this plane come at them on the left, and Peter Nielsen's on the ground at Sky Guide on the right workstation dealing with Aero Lloyd Flight 1135 that wants to land in Friedrichshafen. At 11.34 and 42 seconds, the traffic advisory warning from TCAS is heard on both the Russian and DHL planes. Traffic, traffic is heard in each cockpit. First Officer Grigoriev on Flight 611 says, Now fucking traffic. First Officer Itkolov says, Traffic, traffic. Six seconds after that TA advisory goes off, Peter Nielsen at Sky Guide says, BTC 2937, uh, descend flight level uh, 350, expedite. I have crossing traffic. Before Peter Nielsen gets done speaking, in the cockpits of both planes, TCAS sends out the more serious warning the RA, or Resolution Advisory Warning. On Flight 611, TCAS gives the audio warning, Descend, Descend. And on Flight 2937, TCAS gives the opposite audio warning, Climb, Climb. At this moment, both planes disengage their autopilot. So now the pilots on Flight 2937 are confused. They've just been told by Peter Nielsen to descend to 35,000 feet because of traffic, and they start descending, but the TCAS on their plane just said, climb, climb. Flight 2937's captain, Captain Gross, pushes forward on the control column, the plane starts to descend, and the pilot behind the captain, Itkalov, questions the decision, saying, it says climb, referring to the TCAS warning. First Officer Grigoriev responds, he's guiding us down, essentially saying, air traffic control knows what they're doing, and they're telling us to go down in altitude. On Flight 611, their TCAS said, descend, descend. And within 12 seconds, they've reached a descent rate of 1,500 feet per minute. So both planes are descending. At 11.35 and 3 seconds, Peter Nielsen radios over again to the Russian plane, 
BTC 2937 descend flight level 350 expedite descent. While his fellow pilots discussed quickly whether they should descend or climb, Captain Gross pulled on the control column, which decreased the level of descent. After Peter Nielsen radios over a second time with instructions to descend, First Officer Gregoriev responds, Expedite Descent, Level 350, BTC 2937. The throttles for Flight 2937 are pulled back, and Captain Gross pushes forward on the control column again, increasing the descent rate to more than 2,000 feet per minute. At 11.35 p.m. and 11 seconds, a strengthening resolution advisory warning is heard in the DHL cockpit. Increased descent. Increased descent. First Officer Campione returns from the bathroom and he says, increase. And the descent rate for Flight 611 reaches 2,500 feet per minute. Peter Nielsen radios over to the Russian plane, Flight 2937. We have traffic at your 2 o'clock position now at 360. Nielsen was wrong. Traffic was coming from Flight 2937's 10 o'clock, not 2 o'clock. After this message from Nielsen, his attention is pulled once again to Aeroloid Flight 1135. On Flight 611, the Russian officer Grigoryev says, Fucking where is it? Co-pilot Itkolov says, Here on the left. A TCAS strengthening resolution advisory warning goes off in the Russian cockpit. Increase climb. Increase climb. Itkolov again pleads, It says climb. Two seconds later... At 11.35 and 32 seconds, DHL Flight 611 collides into Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937 at 34,890 feet above the German town of Überlingen that borders on the northern shores of Lake Constance. The vertical stabilizer, or shark fin-like tail, the Boeing 757 for Flight 611, cut through the fuselage of Flight 2937 cutting Flight 2937 in half right in the front of its wings. The planes ran into each other almost at a perfect right angle. There were several eyewitness accounts of seeing flaming debris raining down from the skies late that night. One German photographer named Dirk Diestel said, I heard what sounded like thunder, but it wouldn't stop. I looked up and saw what looked like four or five giant fireballs shooting directly over me. Flight 611 lost 80% of its vertical stabilizer from the impact. It flew downward at a 70-degree angle for another 4.3 miles before crashing into a wooded area and bursting into flames. Flight 2937's cockpit fell quickly downward after the collision severed the front of the plane from the back of the plane. The Russian plane broke into four pieces. The back of the plane with the wings and engines still attached flew onward briefly before stalling and falling out of the sky. All 71 human beings on Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937 and DHL Flight 611 died in the collision over Uberling in Germany on July 1st, 2002. The BFU, or German Federal Bureau of Aircraft Accidents Investigation, was in charge of determining the circumstances of the crash and writing a report. The report on the Uberling collision was released in May of 2004. In the report, under the findings section, the BFU disclosed that the operations manual for the Tupolev Tu-154M had wording in the TCAS description that said air traffic control commands would be considered as having greater importance than TCAS directives. It was also revealed that a nearby air traffic control center in Karlsruhe, Germany, had been watching the radar the night of the incident, and they received a short-term conflict alert for Flight 2937 and Flight 611. If you remember from earlier in the story, Peter Nielsen couldn't get these alerts because of the maintenance that was going on that night on the systems at Skyguide. 
The air traffic control employee at Karlsruhe tried to contact Zurich Air Traffic Control 11 times to alert them, but the phone lines were down. The BFU report listed the following as the causes of the crash. The imminent separation infringement was not noticed by air traffic control in time. The instruction for the 2154M to descend was given at a time when the prescribed separation to the B757-200 could not be insured anymore. The 2154M crew followed the air traffic control instruction to descend and continued to do so even after TCAS advised them to climb. This maneuver was performed contrary to the generated TCAS RA. The report went on to say the following systemic causes have been identified. The integration of TCAS into the system aviation was insufficient and did not correspond in all points with the system philosophy. The regulations concerning TCAS published by ICAO and as a result the regulations of national aviation authorities, operational and procedural instructions of the TCAS manufacturer and the operators were not standardized, incomplete, and partially contradictory. Management and quality assurance of the Air Navigation Service Company did not ensure that during the night all open workstations were continually staffed by controllers. Management and quality assurance of the Air Navigation Service Company tolerated for years that during times of low traffic flow at night, only one controller worked while another was allowed to rest. So now we have to ask ourselves, how did the Uberlingen mid-air collision of Flight 2937 and Flight 611 make flying safer today? Well, the BFU report made a number of safety recommendations to ICAO, which have been adopted. First off, TCAS was a relatively new technology at the time of the incident. It was clear that the pilots didn't know which had precedence, directions from air traffic control or directions from TCAS. The BFU report stated that ICAO should ensure that rules and procedures concerning TCAS should be uniform, clear, and unambiguous. When pilots receive a resolution advisory warning, they should respond immediately and maneuver as indicated unless it would jeopardize the safety of the plane. Pilots should never maneuver in the opposite sense to an RA, nor maintain a vertical rate in the opposite sense to an RA. So through the Uberlingen collision, pilots worldwide learned that TCAS directions always have more importance than air traffic control directions. The report encouraged more training and education to pilots about TCAS. Third, the report said ICAO should work on downlinking RAs to air traffic control centers so air traffic controllers can know if planes are getting these directions from TCAS and they don't have to give conflicting directions to flights. Next, the report said that if short-term conflict alerts are unavailable to air traffic controllers, there should be a visual indication to the controller that they're unavailable. Uh, When questioning Peter Nielsen, he revealed that he was unaware that the maintenance happening that night had made short-term conflict alerts unavailable, so the report addressed that. The report said secondary phone lines should be installed at air traffic control centers to ensure phone calls can get through to controllers in case the first line's down. Another few recommendations were made concerning air traffic control centers to make sure there were proper staffing levels and proper training for employees. Lastly, there was one example of poor CRM, or crew resource management, from this incident. One of the Russian pilots, Idkalov, expressed apprehension about descending when TCAS told Flight 2937 to climb. He expressed this twice, and his concern was dismissed by the captain and first officer. Good crew resource management would have taken everyone's concerns in the cockpit as serious and equal. 
It was another important lesson about how working well together as a crew and how all perspectives and opinions should be given significant attention as it can mean the difference between a safe flight and a dangerous accident. Before we get into the discussion phase of today's episode, there's one more facet of the Uberlingen mid-air collision that's just shocking and just makes the story even sadder than it already is. Peter Nielsen, the air traffic controller at Skyguide that night, suffered a nervous breakdown after the accident. He was in therapy and on antidepressants and would never go back to his job at Skyguide as air traffic controller again. In a statement made by Nielsen after the incident, Nielsen said, As a father, I sense that this loss leaves a gap that will hurt. On the night of the accident, I was part of a network of people, computers, monitoring and transmission devices, and regulations. All these parts must work together seamlessly and without error, and they must be synchronized. As an air traffic controller, it's my task and duty to prevent such accidents. So many children lost their lives, and so many hopes for the future were erased. One Russian man, Vitaly Koloyev, lost his wife Svetlana, his 10-year-old son Konstantin, and his 4-year-old daughter Diana from the crash. All three were on board Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937. Koloyev was one of the first family members in Uberlingen after the crash. Vitaly had just finished working for two years on a project as a builder and architect in Barcelona. His family was flying to Barcelona to go on vacation with him because he had just completed his work. Koloyev was waiting at the Barcelona airport when he found out about the accident, and he flew immediately to Zurich, and then he took a cab from Zurich airport to the crash site. Once there, he found his daughter's body stuck in a tree, and also had to confront the reality that his son and his wife were gone as well. Like Peter Nielsen, Koloyev had a nervous breakdown from the accident and the emotional stress of losing his family. At the one-year anniversary of the crash in July 2003, Koloyev confronted the head of Sky Guide, Alain Rossier, to ask if he could meet with the air traffic controller in charge of Swiss airspace that night, the night of the accident, and was denied the request. Peter Nielsen's identity had been hidden from the media after the crash. The statement Nielsen released was signed Peter N., but his full name was not released to the public. Koloyev hired a private detective in Moscow to find out where Peter Nielsen lived. After receiving this address, Kaloya flew to Zurich, Switzerland on Saturday, February 21st, 2004, and he checked into room 316 at the Welcome Inn in the suburb of Kloten. Hotel employees state that Kaloya stayed cooped up in his room for three days, eating alone at breakfast, but mostly just staying in his room. On his fourth day in town, Tuesday, February 24th, 2004, Kaloya made the half-hour walk to the address that the private detective had given him which wasn't far from the hotel he was staying at. Vitaly ran into a local, and he showed her the piece of paper in his hand that had the address and name of Peter Nielsen on it. Peter Nielsen's neighbor pointed out Nielsen's front door, and Koloyev sat down on a garden chair outside the door. Peter Nielsen had just arrived back in town from a trip to Geneva, and he was watching television. Inside the house with Peter was his wife and three children. Peter told his wife about the strange, disheveled-looking man outside and told her to stay inside while he went to see what the man wanted. Upon confronting Koloyev, the Russian man produced pictures of his dead family members from an envelope. Koloyev said he recalled telling Peter, I am from Russia. Koloyev said that Peter asked him to leave and swatted at his hand, causing the pictures of his family members to be dropped to the ground. At this point, Vitaly says he blocks out. At 5.51 p.m., Koloyev pulls an 8-inch knife from his pocket 
and stabbed Peter Nielsen multiple times. Kaloya fled the scene and threw the knife on a nearby snow mound, which was found by the police with his fingerprints on it. Hearing Peter's screams, his wife came outside and found Peter laying on the ground covered in blood. Peter told her to call an ambulance, but by the time the emergency services arrived at 6.17 p.m., Peter had died. Kaloya would later claim that he didn't remember anything between the pictures being knocked out of his hand and coming to in his hotel room covered in blood. Vitaly said he drank two bottles of vodka and put his blood-soaked clothes in a paper bag and threw them in a dumpster. At 5 p.m. the following day, police arrived at the Welcome Inn and arrested Vitaly Kaloya for the murder of Peter Nielsen. Kaloya was sentenced to eight years in prison for murder. At first, he was held in a psychiatric facility before being transferred to prison. On November 8, 2007, just three years into his sentence, he was released by Swiss authorities and flew back home to Russia. The Swiss government said he was unstable at the time of the incident. And there were a lot of hard feelings between Switzerland and Russia due to the crash of Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937. And this was an attempt to patch over these tensions between the two countries. Kaloyev was received back home as a hero in Russia. He was given a coveted government job as Deputy Minister of Construction. He was awarded the highest state medal by the Republic of Ossetia. In an interview, Vitaly Kaloyev said that killing Peter Nielsen didn't give him peace, didn't make him feel any better. His family's still gone. So that's the sad ending to this story. So Tess, it's a shocking end to the tale of the Uberlingen mid-air collision. Did you have any thoughts you'd like to share who do you think bears the most responsibility for what happened? Well, first of all, that story is really shocking, and I was not expecting that ending. Yeah, it's um, pretty sad. Yeah, I just feel bad for everyone involved. I feel bad for, you know, Peter Nielsen, and I feel bad for the man who showed up at his doorstep. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, obviously Peter Nielsen messed up um, in a in a big way, but it sounds like he was didn't have the support he needed Mm -hmm. um, in air traffic control and his phones were down. There were a lot of factors that made it hard for him to do his job. Yeah. I would say that he couldn't do his job. I don't think that Peter Nielsen's actually to blame. I kind of think the only party that I can think to blame is management at sky guide. They're the ones that created this dangerous situation by not properly staffing their air traffic control center. And I think, you know, messing with the equipment, didn't give Peter Nielsen all the tools he needed to do to do his job. The place was understaffed. So I don't think Peter Nielsen, uh, yes, he made mistakes, but I think he was asked to do an impossible task. If you look at the other um, aspects, like the DHL Flight 611, they obeyed TCAS, so I don't think they did anything wrong. The Russian pilots listened to air traffic control, and the manual that they had on their uh, plane told them, you always listen to air traffic control no matter what. So I feel like the Russian pilots didn't even do anything wrong. I feel like the number one person to blame is management at Sky Guide. They created a dangerous situation, had maintenance working on the systems that didn't allow Peter Nielsen to do his job. I thought it was also interesting what you said about um, improper resource management in Flight 2937, the mm-hmm. Russian plane. Um, the fact that one of the pilots had um, flagged the, uh, what was it, TCA? TCA? TCAS. TCAS, sorry. Yeah. TCAS uh, warning and wanted to listen to to it. Yeah, I think that's uh, good that you picked up on that. I think that that was definitely a moment where one of the pilots in 
the Russian plane was not comfortable with the choices being made by the captain and the first officer. And when he spoke up and says, hey, it says climb, they were kind of like, he's guiding us down. They were kind of dismissive. They yeah, just, right. they seemed to uh, not question their own thinking and they told the guy in the back, oh, it's fine. You know, it was definitely a stressful moment. We never like Monday morning quarterbacking here or saying anybody did anything wrong. Definitely but not. That was definitely a moment where the captain and first officer of the Russian plane could have been like, you know what? This guy behind me has a concern. I should consider that. Yeah, definitely. I, if I were the pilot and thank God I'm not a pilot because that would be a disaster. Um, I would want to double check with, um, air traffic control, you know, just to make sure it was the right command. Yeah. They just didn't have the time by that time. That was at 45 seconds. One question I had for you was, if you were in a similar situation to the Russian pilots, they got conflicting messages of what to do. TKS yeah. is saying, climb, climb. They got air traffic control saying, descend, descend, expedite, descend. Yeah. Which do you think you'd be more likely to listen to? Would you be more likely to listen to the human voice with kind of a panic saying descend? Or would mm -hmm. you listen to the computer voice saying climb, climb? I have no doubt that I would listen to the human voice. Yeah, and that's the same rationale that they had, I yeah. think, is that... You know, there was an urgency in a human being saying, do this. And they, you know, were like, okay, that's what we should do. Yeah. I, it's not like the computer was like, you have to climb right now and had like some intonation. <laughs> Frantic yeah. tone. Yeah. I think I definitely feel unsure, though, even just just any kind of conflicting information is unsettling. Yeah. Um, so I would I'd probably want to double check, but. You're right. They didn't have time to do that. Yeah. One thing you always say every podcast is that it's always a million things that seem to line up for these crashes to occur. Right. Which is comforting when you're flying to think about. Yeah. All these things have to go perfectly wrong for you to end up in that situation. This was, you know, like a lot of those other crashes where first the kids missed their plane on June 29th by being taken to the wrong airport. If they just got taken to the right airport, they would have been in Barcelona right. on June 29th. Never would have happened. Then you have all the issues at Zurich ACC. You got Peter alone. His radar info is delayed. The collision warning is off because of maintenance. He has to monitor two workstations simultaneously. The phone lines don't work. Backup systems don't work. And suddenly at the most critical moment of his night, he has this added distraction of, surprise, you have to land this plane. I mean, to me, it just sounds like Peter was living a nightmare. I also couldn't help but think about the crazy probability of these two planes reaching the same point in the sky at the same altitude. You know, they descended perfectly together to collide at the exact same altitude. It just seems highly, highly improbable, and it's kind of shocking that it occurred. Yeah, it truly is a nightmare, especially for those of us who don't have great executive functioning skills. Yeah. Uh, if one of the planes had just said, ignored TCAS and been like, you know what? I'm just going to keep on flying at 36,000 feet. They probably would have missed each other. They would have right. been a thousand feet apart from each other. Right. Yeah. Um, as far as the pr murder of Peter Nielsen, what did you think about that story? I mean, I think that's horrifying. It's, I, I can't imagine how he must have felt. And it sounds like he, you know, had suffered from a mental breakdown and was already living in a significant amount of pain. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like two people probably suffering from mental issues interacting. Yeah. It's a shame that the Russian man, uh, Koloyev, never got mental help or therapy. Uh, he felt the need to act out this way. And it's upsetting. To me, I, I, I think that it's uh, definitely nothing to be glorified 
and the way that Russia handled the situation when he came back and you know treated him like a hero and gave him an award seemed kind of crazy as well because right. it's 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 nothing you want to encourage and it was just sad this guy was he even said i'm not happy this didn't make me feel better now peter nielsen's kids and wife don't have a husband or a father around does that make you feel better he said no so yeah it's just a sad story getting sadder yeah another random thought i had was um the private detective that decided to give him that in- information wasn't being very responsible yeah i mean all he'd have to do is read the news and know who he was looking for and know what the situation was to mm -hmm. know that you know um what was his name koloyev koloyev wasn't probably wasn't looking for him for any good reason well koloyev said that he really just wanted an apology all along he wanted to talk to someone and that really gets to me another reason that i think it's really upsetting i don't want anybody to get murdered definitely didn't want uh, peter nielsen to get murdered but it just seems like his his anger was misplaced at peter nielsen because as we discussed earlier i don't think peter nielsen was the main one to blame i think the management at sky guide that created this dangerous situation was the main one to blame I feel like mm. getting mad at Peter Nilsson just doesn't make a lot of sense. He was just the working class guy that was stuck in this overwhelming situation. So do you think Koloyev went with the intention then to um, get an apology? or I mean, he did have a knife yeah, on him. Exactly. You can't avoid Bingo. that fact. You hit that on the head, which <laughs> is he said he went there for an apology, but he did arrive in Zurich. And one of the first things he did in Zurich was yeah. go buy a knife. Who doesn't travel with a knife? I mean, I don't. I know I do. So it's a unfortunate thing. If anything, Sky Guides management caused the issue and Peter Nielsen had to pay with a horrible two last years of his life, you know, racked with guilt and, uh, you know, having a nervous breakdown and being upset. And then he has to pay with his life as well. Yeah, that's horrible, horribly tragic story. In August 2006, a Swiss prosecutor brought 71 charges of negligent homicide against eight employees at Skyguide. Four of the eight were found guilty and convicted of manslaughter, and three received a suspended one-year sentence. One was fined around $10,000. In 2017, a movie came out about the Uberlingen mid-air collision called Aftermath, and it starred Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was going to ask if someone made a movie about this. It feels very sensational. Sensational, yeah. Very Hollywood. I want to give a shout out to a listener from Ankara, Turkey. Ur, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Emailed us and helped us understand TCAS for this episode. So just want to say thank you for the help. Thank you very much. In 2004, a memorial was unveiled in memory of the victims from the Uberlingen collision near the crash site by Lake Constance. The memorial consists of giant steel balls with a loose steel thread running through them, representing a broken pearl necklace. There's also a memorial plaque there with the names of victims from the crash. There's also another memorial in the southern cemetery of Ufa, Russia, home to where many of the victims from the Uberlingen mid-air collision resided prior to the crash. Well, I think that's going to do it for the story of the Uberlingen mid-air collision. I have a few stories from the world of airline news. Want to hear them, Tess? Yeah, hit me with what you got. Southwest Airlines has announced that in late 2020, they will start servicing flights into Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Yampa Valley Regional Airport already receives flights from United, American Airlines, JetBlue, Delta, and Alaska Airlines. Well, now you can add Southwest Airlines to that list. Yampa Valley Regional Airport is 24 miles to the west of Steamboat Springs. Steamboat Springs is a popular ski destination during the winter months, 
Also, the town is home to a number of geothermal hot springs. These hot springs are said to have healing benefits. With Southwest Airlines, bags fly free. So if you have skis and want to go on a ski trip, you can fly Southwest to Steamboat Springs and your skis fly along with you free of charge. Tess, what do you think about Southwest and Steamboat Springs? Well, Michael, I happen to know that you have a Southwest mileage card, and I'd just like to say I'm available for any vacations you might want to take. Yeah, I'm down. When I saw this, I was like, sign me up. Sign me up now. Apparently, I never knew I had to go to Steamboat Springs, but it's officially on the list. Well, you just tried skiing recently for the first time, and you're addicted to hot springs. For those of you who don't know, Michael is a hot spring enthusiast. Yes, I am. A bit of a preview for a future show. I'm currently reading a book about a flight from Steamboat Springs to Denver sent in by a listener, and it'll be the subject of an upcoming episode, so be on the lookout for that. Are you going to make us any promises to um, churn out an episode in a week? I don't know. This past week's been pretty rough. Yeah, you were working around (laughs) the clock. I'm going to try and get you on as soon as possible, people. Yes. Boeing announced this past week that they're using this downtime while they've halted production on their MAX plane to evaluate production systems at their Seattle plant. Boeing is seeking to improve production efficiency, improve the quality of their builds, and thus prevent defects like scratches or dents to their planes, which often cost Boeing in the form of discounts that they have to pass along to airlines. Often jet factories are operating 24-7 for years on end, so production pauses like the one Boeing is currently experiencing is rare and a great opportunity for Boeing to try and fine-tune their production system. A story in the Wall Street Journal from a few days ago highlighted that 70% of recently inspected, yet-to-be-delivered MAX planes had debris or trash in the fuel tanks when overlooked by inspectors. These stories of brand new planes having trash and tools left behind by assemblers in them have become far too common for Boeing in recent years. Boeing is using the production pause to implement new policies and simplifying toolkits provided to employees to prevent the company from dealing with similar issues in the future. Boeing stated that once production in the plant resumes later this year, they hope to produce 52 jets a month and eventually get up to 57 jets a month in the year 2023. So Tess, it seems like that uh, Boeing is finally admitting that they've had some serious lapses in their production systems, and it looks like they're trying to use this timeout to right the ship. What do you think? Yeah, it sounds like they're trying to right some of their wrongs and get off to a fresh start. Yeah, I think time for personal reflection is necessary for everyone. Necessary for human beings, necessary for companies. We all make mistakes. It's all how you respond to a mistake that matters. Even this podcast has changed as we've gone along. We try and evaluate what works and what doesn't work. I want Boeing to succeed. I want Airbus to succeed. I want everyone to succeed. And we want this podcast to succeed. Yes, we want this podcast to succeed. So hopefully Boeing improves the company culture, gets their employees to take greater pride in their job, and stops rushing their planes throughout production to make quotas. Focus on making a quality product. You can't rush quality. Especially when it has to do with flying through the air. Exactly. Next, we have another story concerning the Boeing plant in Seattle. In the Los Angeles Times, there was a story about two peregrine falcons that have made the Boeing plant in Seattle their home. The male and female falcon live up in the rafters of the Boeing plant, where they've apparently been living rent-free for the past three years. So why the Boeing plant? What made these two falcons want to establish permanent residence there? Well, the factory has heat in the winter and some sweet AC in the summertime. Apparently, the falcons like climate control. Also, there's a number of pigeons, crows, and starlings in the area that the falcons like to feed on. Problems have arisen at the factory, though, because the falcons attack their prey inside the factory, 
and it's become commonplace to find a severed bird head, feathers, falcon droppings, and other debris on the floor of the Boeing factory and the floor of the lunch area. The falcons are also reportedly horrible parents. Just last June, three of their babies fell from the rafters when trying to learn to fly, and there was no response from the adult falcons. Workers called a wildlife rehab center that took over care of the baby falcons, nursed them back to health, and gave them to a falconer. Workers in the Seattle plant say that when the plant bell rings, which signifies that the plant doors are about to open, the two falcons perk up. Apparently, when the plant doors open, pigeons fly inside so the falcons can hear the bell, and they think of it as a dinner bell. Oh, they're smart, aren't they? Yes. For now, the falcon couple that can dive bomb at speeds of up to 242 miles per hour are still living in the Seattle plant. What do you think, Tess? Should the falcons be given an eviction notice ASAP, or should Boeing give up and just put them on the payroll? I'd say they're employees of the month. Yeah, they've been around for three years. I feel like after three years, they should get some sort of squatter's rights or something. Definitely. Falcon squatter's rights. That or Boeing should be like, you guys need to join the union. Start paying your dues. I mean, personally, I wouldn't mess with those falcons because those falcons aren't falcon around. They aren't falcon around, people. One other thought is maybe these birds are just obsessed with flight. They're huge fans of narrow-body aircraft. They probably listen to the podcast. Shout out to the Falcons and the Seattle Boeing plant. Please follow us on Twitter and give us a good review in between your pigeon feast. Yeah, they're so obsessed with flight that they forgot to teach their kids how to fly. Yeah, they just are into the dinner bell. Lastly, the Department of Transportation released statistics this past week on which airlines were the most punctual. Hawaiian Airlines took the top spot for the 16th year in a row. 87% of its flights ran on time. Of course, the airline operates in Hawaii, home to amazing weather. Delta was in second place at 83.5%. Alaska, Southwest, Sprint, Allegiant, American, United, JetBlue, and Frontier completed the list in that order. Canceled flights rose in 2019 compared to 2018, up 1.9%. 21,000 passengers were bumped from flights in 2019, though bumping is still incredibly rare. Only one in 41,000 passengers were bumped last year. What do you think, Tess? Seems like Delta made a lot of money in 2019 and also had very few delays. Do you see a correlation? Yeah, I mean, I think if an airline has a reputation for being punctual and organized and on top of their shiz, um, people are more inclined to buy tickets from them. Although I have to say that I don't think delays are always bad. I mean, sometimes if there's bad weather or mechanical issues, they can be good. Yeah. no, <laughs> Keep I bet, us safe. I bet there's been delays out there where somebody's met their significant other and had a long, happy life because of that delay. Because of that sexy extended layover. I think a lot of delays have to do with weather. And if you're an airline and you're operating in the Northeast, you're probably going to have a lot of delays. And if you're Hawaiian Airlines and you're in Hawaii, you're not going to have a lot of delays. So maybe we shouldn't read too much into delays, but it seems like Delta is all over the place. They do profit sharing. I feel like we're plugging Delta all the time, but it seems like they uh, are having a pretty good year. Definitely. Well, I think that's going to do it for the 17th episode of Plane Crash Podcast. Thank you to Tess. Tess, you want to say anything to the people out there? Thank you for having me, Michael. Pleasure as always. And I hope you fly safe out there. Thank you for being on the podcast. Um, If you want to go to Twitter, we're at Plane Crash Pod. If you have time and can review us, we'd appreciate it. I hope you're all having an amazing February. We're almost to March. Hope you're working hard, taking care of your loved ones, taking care of yourself finding time to book an amazing trip somewhere so you have something awesome to look forward to. I'm going to work hard at trying to get you a new episode as soon as I can. Thanks again for uh, all the love, and we hope to see you again soon. 
Bye, guys. 